If you podcast it, will they come? That, of course, is the question today on Inside the War Room. Ryan right here, as always, and my guest is Dwyer Brown, who played the iconic role of the father in Field of Dreams. And so um, we talk about that. Of course, we talk about my favorite show, or one of my favorite shows, The Practice. Uh, Dwyer had a part in that, and about his career, his life, and what he has going on now if you appreciate this podcast, please take two seconds and hit the five-star button wherever you may be. It helps us get on great guests just like this. For everything in the show notes, go into RyanRaySenior.com, and you will find that all of the stuff we talked about right there today. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dwyer Brown. Well, Dwyer, welcome to the War Room. Well, it's good to be here, Ryan. Thank you. Okay, so obviously you are well known for your role in an iconic film, but uh, but I got to be honest with you, you were on my favorite show of all time, which is The Practice. I say my first, it's not my favorite show. Band of Brothers is my favorite show, but one of my favorite shows of all time, The Practice. And so I want to talk about The Practice just for a second. I think it is an underrated show in popular culture today. But um, how did you get that role? And, and just curious, did you were you a big fan of the show? How does that work from your your perspective? Because uh, it's an iconic show that I think, especially the first season was so good, but the episode you're in was a really good one too. So I, I'm curious about your time on the practice. Uh, well, gosh, yeah, these, uh, almost all my jobs I got just from auditioning, you know, you, when, when a show needs a certain amount of roles, they sent out to, to agencies all over Los Angeles and, uh, I just auditioned and, and, uh, was lucky enough to get it, but yeah, it was a really fun show to work on. Did you realize this on that show, particularly at the time that that was going to be a big arc, um, not your, your story, but the main story of that, that show was going to be a big arc going through multiple seasons. I really didn't, you know, the, the what's interesting uh, when the internet came about uh, television shows had to become very tight lipped about what their, uh, you know, future plans were because it would, it would leak out and then, you know, people would have opinions and, you know, so, uh, yeah, the, I mean, you used to get, uh, you used to get scripts, you know, in advance and these days, you know, they, you, they sort of hand it to you just before the thing and it's, you know, uh, non-disclosure agreements attached and, you know, it's, uh, it's a different world, but no, I, I really didn't, uh, see the future of that one. <laughs> yeah. I was going through just your, your IMDB and I was like, Oh man, the practice. And I was like, okay, let me go look up what episode that was. And I was like, Oh wow, that was an iconic episode of that show. And then you play a son and the dad's on trial. I can't remember what it was. The dad was on trial. And so you kind of have a, a reversal of the field of dreams in that, in that episode. That's why I was curious if you'd gotten reached out for something because of your field of dreams connection in the, in the father son yeah. role. Yeah, I, I mean, not that I was aware of. I mean, you know, maybe that was in their secret casting meetings, but uh, yeah. I didn't know about it. Obviously, you've had a long, lengthy career. You've been on a lot of the big shows, House, CSI. Um, you were in the Hannibal Lecter series, if I remember correctly. Ally McBeal, Seventh Heaven, Murder, She Wrote. I mean, that is a who's who's of television. Obviously, Field of Dreams is is probably the the one most iconic, but things are thinking, man, these all these shows they all have a place in, in modern TV history. What's it like to have a career where you get to experience and be a part of such of these iconic brands? Well, you know, I mean, it, it is pretty exciting. I grew up, you know, maybe just like you did. I, I grew up out on a farm. And so, you know, we watched TV, but to, to think that, you know, I wanted to be an actor, but to actually imagine that, you know, one of the first jobs I got was the Thornbirds and, 
you know, Barbara Stanwyck was in that who I'd watched, you know, in the Big Valley every, you know, every day after school and, and uh, you know, Richard Chamberlain and, and, you know, get to work with James Earl Jones in, in Field of Dreams. I mean, it's Burt Lancaster. It was just, you know, it's almost impossible to, to grasp how, uh, you know, how, what, what a crazy journey that was for me from this, you know, little farm in Ohio to, uh, to actually being in movies with, with some of the stars that I admired. Yeah. And so obviously Field Dreams, I'm sure you get recognized for the most, but what would be the second most recognizable role that you get called out for? Gosh, well, I was in a, a figure skating movie called The Cutting Edge, which, you know, it's a, sort of a romantic comedy. And uh, uh, surprisingly, uh, Firefly, which is, a, you know, kind of mm. a big uh, mm-hmm. uh, science fiction thing, is uh, their fans are pretty rabid. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I see somebody coming up to me and I think they're going to, you know, ask, you know, to have a catch and they'll say, you were in you were in Firefly, you know. So anyway, it, it's always exciting, you know, when somebody recognizes you for something because, you know, in my regular life, I, you know, look different and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not playing the character. So uh, I realized that, oh, I must have made an impression if they remember me this much longer, this much later. Yeah. And that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the questions you've really embraced and have become a part of this field of dreams. Um, I don't know if movement's the right word, but the ethos and, and, and the continuation of talking about that film um, where you see some actors, they kind of, they kind of spurn what kind of the, the iconic roles. I, I mean, think about someone like Harrison Ford, who obviously is a is a megastar, but his relationship to the Star Wars universe has been kind of interesting. It's like, well, you know, this fan base is what really catapulted you to the to the stratosphere, and it's a more iconic maybe than um, a lot of the other roles he's played. And so you you, you see that stars um, in movies sometimes they don't like to be attached to certain films. And so was that a process for you? Did you always want to be kind of known as Field of Dreams, or did you have to kind of grow into that? Well, uh, to be honest, uh, I, I was kind of embarrassed when, when people started recognizing me. I mean, it, of course, it was great. But at the same time, you know, I had this six minute role in the movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're still looking for the next job, even though, you know, people are watching the movies and all that stuff. And and uh, I sort of thought that because, you know, Kevin and, and James Earl and, and, and Burt Lancaster and Tim Busfield had, had kind of opened everybody's heart in that movie that, you know, anybody could have kind of walked in and, and, and done a good job with my part. And, uh, but I, I, when I ended up writing a book about, you know, the, how, how much that movie changed my life, um, that's when I sort of kind of took ownership uh, of, of the part. I mean, I, I'd gotten down to the last few against Tom Cruise for Risky Business and gotten down to the last few against Brad Pitt for Thelma and Louise, but, you know, obviously, spoiler alert, I didn't get those. Um, but, you know, this is the part I got. And I think, you know, you have to uh, if you're going to beat yourself up for the ones you didn't get, you sort of have to, uh, you know, give yourself a pat on the back for the ones you did. And so once I wrote the book, I, I, I kind of took a little more ownership of, of, of my role in that, you know, small though it may have been. Uh, I, I think it was a, an interesting bit of casting. Um, a lot of people don't know that that, uh, you know, I've been cast in the movie and I, I went home to visit my folks in Ohio before I went to Iowa and uh my dad ended up dying the night I arrived in, in Ohio. So it, uh, you know, it definitely made that movie a little more poignant for me, uh, you know, leaving my father's funeral and going to Iowa to play a dead father coming out of the corn to have a catch with their son. So, um, you know, th- that aspect of it also made that movie kind of, um, you know, much more uh, meaningful for me. And, and, you know, maybe by extension to the, to the audience who came to watch it. Yeah. And you talk about kind of the the big names, James Earl Jones, Kevin Costner, obviously. Uh, Costner is 
obviously tied to the film. I'm not sure sure the other guys are tied to it as much. I mean, James Earl Jones, you can't you can't deny his presence. But but the way the movie's set up is is you know obviously at the end there is the payoff moment and it's a new character who we've heard about but we haven't seen and so it kind of really shifts the whole focus from all of these other big names to just you and Kevin Costner and it's kind of a a a, um, a beautiful way to to do it but also it it is unique because we haven't seen you all movie we've heard about you uh, alluded to you uh, to your character at least and then and then boom we have all of a sudden this cataclysmic shift and then that's the moment that's what we've been building up to and so um it is that I think as hearing you talk about this it is kind of weird that you're saying well maybe I, I didn't get as much screen time as others but also the whole movie is building up to this and we kind of find that to the big reveal and so it really brings you as into a larger than life type character yeah I I I, I sort of had the same conclusion you know that I, I was surprised when people would recognize me from the movie you know from such a small part but I think you know, memory is attached to emotion, you know, you remember things that were emotional in some way, whether they were scary or, or, you know, very pleasant. And I think because the audience's heart was so open at that moment, you know, they think, you know, Ray has finally, you know, realized his dream. And then to have the father appear, I think people were, you know, really wide open and, and taking in all the stimulus, which is why my face got, you know, tattooed on people's optic nerves. So, <laughs> so when they see me, you know, 20 years later, you know, scruffy and everything else, they, they still are, you know, managed to uh, attach me to the movie, which has been, you know, great for me and, and, and very flattering. Yeah. Is it intimidating playing a role like that where you're coming in, um, you know, you, you're, you're Kevin Costner's dad, obviously you're not his dad in real life and you're not older than him. You're younger than him in real life. I think about a couple yeah. of years. And so now you're, you're cast to be the one who is his, his, his senior, his elder. And in this role, um, you know, an important part to the character's life. Does it change that it's Kevin Costner at all? Or I was like, no, 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 this is, this is another role. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, Kevin was great, fortunately. So he was very easy to work with. And we, we talked a lot, you know, about the scene and I mean, what's a couple interesting things is I, I, I didn't realize the, the, the role was going to be that pivotal. I was familiar with the book, Shoeless Joe and, and the father is introduced in the first chapter and they sort of have a conversation throughout the movie so when I went there, I thought, oh, you know, this is just another, this is just tying, tying up the final loose end of the movie. What I didn't appreciate was how, you know, James Horner's score and, and just the momentum of the movie, as you said, kind of pushed everything right to my appearance in the, in the, in the film. And uh, I didn't recognize that until we saw the screening the, the day before it was released to the public. So uh, I was, you know, kind of as surprised as anyone else. And um you know, it, it was a great benefit for me. It, it, it felt a little like, uh, you know, a minor league, <clears throat> a minor league pitcher, you know, coming in at the, you know, ninth inning of the game seven of the world series or something, you know, mm -hmm. there was a lot of pressure. I mean, I did a lot of uh, smaller roles in my career and I, I think it's, it's hard to appreciate, uh, you know, if you're not an actor that there is kind of an additional pressure, you know, like my character hadn't really been introduced. So I have to convey a lot of information very quickly. I've only got, you know, seven, eight, 10 lines to, to, to kind of, you know, convey this whole lifetime, you know, and uh, it, it does put kind of additional pressure on there, um, you know, and, and, and most small roles in movies, you know, aren't as uh, significant or substantial, but uh, yeah, it, it is, uh, it, it is a little uh, taxing, but, you know, I mean, it, it was a lot of fun and, and, you know, Kevin was great and, 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 you know, we had a lot of fun shooting that movie. I grew up on a farm, so, 
being on a farm in Iowa was uh, was uh, was a joy to me. It, it felt like my career and my life had come full circle from dreaming of being an actor on a farm in Ohio to you know doing this role on a farm in Iowa. Um, you know, it felt like uh, you know I finally arrived. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the things that um, you talk about this. You know, only having a few lines, but also the rules of the character or the type of character that you play aren't exactly clear, right? So, what do these baseball players understand? How, who, do, how do they understand the world that they're living in, they're interacting with, and obviously that the real, the, the live, the humans that are alive don't understand the rules, and so the rules aren't even clear. And so, trying to communicate how we're going to make this connection is tough because it's the audience doesn't fully at that point. And I don't know if we ever do, <laughs> but we never fully understand what the rules are of engagement here. Yeah, that was something Kevin and I talked about extensively because um, I mean I don't know if too, if, if your audience knows, but uh, it, it, when we shot the movie, the the, the final thing there he says, "Hey, Dad, want to have a catch?" Well, there was no word "Dad" in the script. Um, <clears throat> uh, they added that later, but when we shot it, we were trying to you know kind of convey that kind of like this is this magical thing, and we didn't want to do anything to destroy it. Here I am getting to you know meet my son and and and. Um, anyway, uh, in, after they finished the movie and they had audience screenings, uh, everybody loved the movie, but they said, gosh, you know, Ray was kind of cruel not to acknowledge that this was his father and that he knew it, you know, and kind of complete that circle of, uh, of, uh, you know, second chances and, and redeeming himself. And, uh, and we, we had thought we had done such a great job of, you know, saying it without saying it. But, uh, anyway, they ended up having Kevin record the word dad. And and looping it into the uh, into the soundtrack, uh, you, you'll notice that when he says "Dad," the camera is on me, so so that you can't see his uh, his his lips obviously not moving. But um, yeah, that that to me was part of the fun of it. I, I've always loved that kind of uh, illusion and magical thinking, and you know, the movie sets it up so well with with Shoeless Joe telling Amy, I don't think I can come inside your house for a cup of coffee. And, mm -hmm. and of course, when, when Moonlight Graham steps across the, uh, you know, the baselines there and, and turns into Doc Graham again, uh, it kind of makes the fragility of this magical ball field uh, kind of take on new meaning. Yeah. And I think that you hear you talk about the, the word dad, I think that whole, the whole doc scene, you know, thinking about not having the word dad, but you've, you have doc there before and, and I, I thought that was actually quite a powerful arc there, the the whole doc thing, because you have a man who, you know, he basically re-emulates his, his real career. You know, He comes yeah. in and he gets one at bat and, and then he goes back to being a doctor. And so um, it, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a, a but, but you kind of got, a, I guess, a precursor of the fulfillment of him getting to play uh, one more time and seeing that. And then you get the, the dad. And so, yeah, it, that, 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 I think that it's, a, it's a great job of, of building up there. So you mentioned you obviously your, your dad had passed away. Um, and so you see this movie the day before it's released. What was that like? Just I'm sure is a flood of emotions. Yeah. Uh, what was interesting is usually cast and crew screenings are, are pretty fun kind of, uh, you know, joking events because for the most part, you haven't seen these people for a year since you shot the movie, you've been on to other projects and all that. They bring you all back everybody's kind of happy to see each other again, teasing each other about, you know, things that they would see, you know, the props department notices that the baseball mitt changed, you know, and so he's teasing this guy because he gave him the wrong mitt or didn't paint this one side of the barn. So it looks kind of funny in the shot. And, uh, you know, that's usually the way those things go down. And, and this one started out that way too, but, you know, like a half hour into the movie, it starts getting a little quieter and more quiet. And by the end of the movie, 
I mean, you could have heard a pin drop in that theater and it, it was all of us who were either, you know, our images were on the, the screen itself or, you know, we had a pivotal role in making the movie happen and we were all crying and, and you know, which is, you know, kind of let me know that this, there was definitely something bigger than, than, you know, than what I, than my participation or, or anybody's individual participation in a movie that they really tapped into something that was much, much bigger. And, uh, you know, it, we were all like, you know, pretty, you know, pretty uh, thunderstruck by, by the uh, impact the movie had on, you know, on us. So we were very curious how it was gonna affect uh, audiences out in the world. How much did the score impact the movie? Well, you know, it's very hard to uh, to judge those things, but I think very much so. You know, James Horner, who did wonderful scores for for many movies. Um, you know, when you shoot a movie uh, and they edit it, they put in what's called a temp track, which is just you know, in this case, I guess I think Phil used some Pat Metheny music to kind of give an idea of what he wanted the music to be. And he wanted James Horner to do it and had James come in and watch it in a screening room with him along with uh, Horner's agent. And uh, they watched the whole movie. And just before the movie ended, Horner kind of skulks out of the room and, and uh, you know, the reel rolls out and Phil kind of is like, uh, I guess he didn't like it. He asked the agent, well, where, where, did, where did Jamie go? And um, the guy said, I don't know. So Phil went out looking for him and, and found him in the bathroom and, and he was clearly had been crying. And he said, uh, I'm going to score this movie, you know? Um, and, and, you know, apparently uh, James had, you know, had a somewhat difficult relationship with his dad too. Uh, he, he had worked in Hollywood, but was kind of an absent father a little bit, I guess. And uh, so I think, you know, him bringing his own, I know redemption story to the movie along with, you know, mine with my dad and, and, you know, Kevin with his and everybody on the crew, I think contributed their own little, uh, you know, father son story. And, and I think it's maybe what makes the, the, the ending of the movie so rich is uh, in, in the same way that the, you know, the movie site that still exists there in Dyersville, Iowa, you know, it's just a baseball field and a cornfield, but I, mm. I, I swear there's a feeling of, of hallowed ground there a little, I think, because so many people have, have brought their dad's baseball mitts after they've passed and left them there and, you know, or, you know, taken dirt with them or, you know, sprinkled ashes. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, it, it's kind of one of those things that kind of builds the, the, the longer that it's, uh, you know, people keep bringing their, uh, you know, their love and, and memories to it. Yeah. And, and scoring, I am not a music person at all, so I don't know anything about music, but it, if you watch films or TV shows where they'll remove the score and then you stop to think, wow, someone in their head <laughs> was able to compose music yeah. that matched this moment. It's it's stunning when it's done well. Like it, it's brilliant to me. To, I mean, I don't know how to describe it because it's like, how how did you think that this song? I didn't. I mean, of course it makes sense now. I've heard it, but without it, how did you envision this? It, it's so impressive when you see it done well. Yeah, and 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 Phil, uh, you know, uh, Jamie started bringing in all these weird African uh, instruments and 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 things and you know Phil I think was like uh, I thought this was going to be more traditional but you know obviously all that kind of haunting whistles and 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 you know drum beats at the beginning of the thing kind of really build a uh, you know to the end and yeah I'm with you I, I don't know how they do it but uh, you know that that score <clears throat> you know when they did the MLB game they would play they're playing the score as you walk through the corn to get to the the MLB field and uh, boy that 
you know, that score just really evokes a lot of uh, emotion. What about internationally? Um, do you get people from overseas who reach out about the film or is it really just been a domestic audience that, that has talked that has reached out to you? Uh, I'm surprised how international it is. I get a lot of uh, requests from uh, from England and France, and uh, I went to Italy to 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 do a baseball convention there because uh, it had such an impact there. Uh, I know in Japan, uh, I, I mean, I've seen the the, the DVD uh, and the poster of the movie. My silhouette is kind of prominent, you know, because you know that culture is very much father and son uh, oriented, and uh, uh, you know. Uh, it's it's amazing how how what an outsized uh, impression that, that that it's made and and, and worldwide I, I who knew that they played baseball in Italy uh, but uh, yeah it, it's kind of amazing I, I sort of thought it would be you know pretty domestic uh, but but it's it you know even Australia I have some people down there who who who've contacted me and you know said you know really wonderful things and uh, it's been great well yeah I don't think you could do any sport um, because the father-son interaction, um, you know, shooting hoops together while it's there. It's not the same back and forth that you have. Um, but, but baseball, obviously with America's connection to baseball is there, but the father-son doing something back and forth, the connectiveness of that um, really seems to, to resonate. What is it? Are we not getting enough movies this way? Are people not talking about, you know, father-son relationships? Why is it, or, or, do, or just do fathers and sons long for, this type of interaction, why does this message work so well? So I think baseball is part of it, but I really think it's the father-son thing that's, you could have, you maybe could have done it slightly differently, differently with maybe a football or something um, and, and figure out a way to do it. But why is it the father-son thing um, so powerful? Well, I mean, I think for one thing, baseball is a different kind of game than, than basketball and football in that there's a lot of quiet times, you know, between pitches there's a lot of thinking and strategizing and, you know, the first base coach is, is looking at the pitcher's movement, the catcher's checking, you know, they're, they're adjusting their uh, shifts in the field. And, and, and so I think there's a little more time, you know, when you watch a baseball game with somebody, there's a lot more time, I think really to, to talk. And, and, uh, and I also think that baseball is a game that, you know, more people can play these days, you know, basketball, you, you, you know, usually have to be pretty tall and football, you have to be pretty big, but, you know, a father can play baseball that, you know, till they're in their eighties and nineties, you know, and, and, and that way can share it with their sons for kind of, I think a longer stretch. Um, yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I, I, you know, I just have my little theories too that, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's hard to imagine that movie, you know, with a football field in the cornfield or, or, <laughs> you know, it's just a, it's just a, a different, uh, different, you know, mentality, I guess. Why the book? Why, why the book? Uh, uh, well, you know, uh, as you were saying, um, you know, for years when people would come up to me and tell me stories and, and, and you know, they would usually say, you know, I, I loved you in the movie. And, and then they would start telling, you know, my dad died when I was, you know, 15 years old. And, you know, I, I don't know if I ever recovered from it. And, you know, because my father had died, I would end up talking to these strangers and, and frequently we'd end up, you know, in you know, teary-eyed and, and hugging each other. And uh, I, I sort of thought that this was happening to Kevin and James Earl and, you know, the director, Phil, and all this stuff. And I realized, as you as you said, that, you know, James Earl was in Star Wars and, you know, Kevin has done, you know, dozens and dozens of movies. And if you ran into him somewhere, you'd, 
you'd have a million different things you'd wanted to talk to him about with, you know, with me, it was this six minutes. And, and so, uh, I, I, I realized that these little events, these little confessions that I was hearing from fans, uh, might've been, you know, kind of unique to me because of my positioning in the movie. And, um, so over the years, some amazing stories, people who'd changed careers because of the movie Field of Dreams, people who hadn't talked to their dad for 10 years because of some little squabble, just grabbed them, took them to the movie, and, and you know, they decided to forget their differences and went on to have a relationship. And, and you know, just amazing stories of, of, of the, the great good things that that movie, uh, you know, helped create and inspire. Uh, so uh, I, I kind of taken notes because some of these stories were amazing. I'm this actor who's rarely recognized. And then when it happened, started happening with some regularity, some of these stories were so amazing. So I, I started compiling them. And, and, and that, of course, made me think about my dad. And, you know, I'd had a difficult stretch with my dad in, in my teen years, you know, as, as most boys do. And, uh, you know, and, and then he died suddenly before the movie. And uh, anyway, it, it, it just felt like, people wanted to know more about that movie. I, I've always felt, you know, people go to the movie site just to, to be a part of, of that movie because it's had such an impact in their lives. So uh, yeah, I wrote the book to kind of uh, just talk about, about all these amazing stories that, that people had told me and, and just the great fun we had shooting the movie in, in Iowa in, in 88 and all the difficulties you wouldn't believe. I mean, there was a drought in, in 88 and the corn wouldn't grow. And, 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 you know, ordinarily that wouldn't matter too much. The rain will come in the fall if it needs to, but to shoot a movie with players walking out of the corn would look pretty stupid with the knee high corn, you know? <laughs> yeah. So they had, they went through all kinds of machinations. They had to get special permission to water the corn and, you know, then they watered it and there was this intense heat and they were worried that that might not work. So they ordered 30,000 silk corn stalks from Hong Kong that they were going to shove in the ground if they needed to for us to walk in and out of, which, you know, probably would have, you know, ruined the movie. And, uh, you know, the, 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 they insured the corn for $3 million with Lloyd's of London. And, uh, you know, there was just so many things happening. And, uh, you know, of course, in the end, the, the, the watering of the corn did, did grow. And, and in fact, uh, you know, in the meantime, they had shot every other scene that didn't involve the corn, you know, as, as much of the movie as they could shoot without having to deal with the corn until it was finally tall enough. And, and then they were supposed to shoot a scene where Kevin's, you know, looking at, you know, chest high corn and inspecting it at the very beginning of the movie. Well, the corn by then, because of the watering and the heat was nine feet tall. So they had to build a, a, a platform between the rows of corn so Kevin could walk on it in order to make it look like the corn was still, you know, uh, you know, just chest high and and then, of course, they had to plow it all under to build the field. I mean, it was just fiasco after uh, after fiasco, and and uh, it was surprising that the that the movie you know came out as beautifully as it did, given all the difficulties that were uh, that were encountered during the shooting. Yeah, and it's it's also funny because I don't think trees would have worked as well, right? So there's something about the corn that really works. You know, you can't if if he walks off into a forest, it has probably a more ominous feeling where the corn is just kind of a it's a, it's a great spot to walk into to disappear, if you will. But but also, it's weird how a prop like that is actually a the perfect prop. I'm not sure there's other scenarios you could walk into and have that same mysterious, but not not um, scary or scary. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting how uh, you know walking into the corn, as you can see. I mean, when anybody who's ever done it, you do almost disappear. I mean, I know they did a little visual effect there where they you know 
obviously shot the corn without somebody in it and then, you know, crossfaded. But it's pretty remarkable how it, it, it almost worked. Corn is just one of those things that, you know, it looks like there's a lot of space between it, but, you know, you get eight or 10 feet back in there and you're, you're essentially gone. So anyway, yeah, it, it was kind of a perfect, uh, uh, you know, perfect prop for, uh, you know, the background of that movie. Yeah. Is there a deleted scene that you were a part of that you go, you know, man, I wish they would have put this in the movie or that you've seen that you wish would have been in the final cut? Gosh. Uh, you know, when I researched the book, uh, uh, if you build it, I, th- th- I looked through the script and mainly the things that Phil cut in, in, in the uh, editing were jokes. Uh, Phil is really a comedy writer. I mean, he wrote Rhinestone Cowboy and, and, and All of Me, which is a great comedy with uh, Lily Tomlin and Steve Martin. And uh, there were just little one-liners and you know, Phil's such a funny guy that those were the things that I noticed that, that were in the script that weren't in the movie. Uh, I don't recall uh, too many scenes that were in there. I certainly didn't have any. That, that movie or that uh, scene at the end of the movie was the what I auditioned with and it's what was in the movie in the end. So uh, there were really very little changes in that way. So uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah, nothing on the cutting room floor, plenty of other movies there were, but uh, not that one. So you mentioned the book uh, and then you did a book tour. Uh, I think you were right around the the country, maybe the world at least, but I know you were were going around the Midwest at one time. What stories did you get from the book tour that aren't in the book? Uh, Gosh. uh, Boy, it, it's been such a long uh, journey. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm going uh, this weekend to uh, to, to uh, Boston for a for a baseball dinner, and and uh, yeah, so it continues. I mean, what's been great for me is that uh, major league baseball players uh, are asking me for my autograph. You know, like I, at the game this past year, right. Johnny Bench was there, and he, you know, he was a hero of mine. I grew up in Ohio, and and you know, Johnny Bench is. And he's just the nicest guy, but he wanted me to sign his press credential and, and take a picture with him. And, mm-hmm. you know, Ozzie Smith and, and uh, Vita Blue and, and, you know, these just amazing heroes of mine want me to, to take a picture with them, which is just, you know, so flattering and, and unbelievable to me. But, uh, you know, those things, because frequently the book tour takes me to uh, sports memorabilia shows and, mm-hmm. and, and those kind of things. And, uh and so I get to meet these, uh, these great guys, but, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been quite a ride. And, you know, I, I was just an actor. I didn't know that I would end up writing a book. I didn't know that the book would then take me on book tours. I mean, I've been to probably 60 minor league stadiums across the country and, and in the world really. Uh, and you know, it's just been very rewarding because everywhere there's somebody who'll come up to me and, you know, get very, connected and, and, and tell me some amazing story that, that I, uh, you know, that I just, you know, just knocks me over and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of this great gift that, that, that keeps on giving for me. And it always reminds me of my dad, which, which is, uh, you know, to me, just a great benefit to have something that constantly keeps him in my mind. Yeah. You mentioned this difficult, you said that, um, something to the fact of that a lot of young men have a difficult stretch with dad during their teenage years and this film kind of has helped people get past that. Um, why is it that from these people that you've talked to that maybe two, that a dad and a son have these periods and it takes maybe some like a film to kind of bring us back to the human element and, and to, to repair the relationship? Well, you know, I guess there's, I mean, you know, there's a complex, the Oedipus complex, you know, from the, from the uh, Greek play that, uh, you know, 
you, you sort of, when you're growing up as a young man, you know, this is your role model, but you get to a point where you want to be your own man. And suddenly that, that guidance role becomes sort of adversarial. You feel like you have to, uh, you know, one up them or, or, you know, in, in Oedipus, you have to kill them in order to be your own man. So, so I think it's natural in, in sort of, uh, human psychology, but, um, you know, I also think that, you know, dads, particularly dads of my generation are, are pretty close to the vest with their emotions. And, you know, me growing up on a farm, I was had all these emotions and, and you know, couldn't express them. I, my dad had a pretty tough life and, you know, he was all about, you know, buck up and, you know, I'll, don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about those kind of uh, adages. And, and uh, you know, so I think it's kind of inherent in the relationship. There's a lot unspoken and, you know, in the movie itself, you know, Ray's dad, uh, you know, my, my character was wanted Ray to be the baseball player that I couldn't be, you know, and I think there's a lot of that, you know, we as, as fathers sometimes, you know, didn't change the world the way we wanted to or, or get to that level we wanted to. And, and, and we, we, it's in the best. We love our sons and we want them to, and our daughters too, we want them to succeed but, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of difficulties in, in, in letting that happen. You want them to succeed, but, you know, some parents don't want them to be more successful than they were. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, difficulties in that relationship inherently. And I think the movie kind of tapped into that, the idea that you would get a second chance to kind of fix those things when you're old enough to understand the way, the way Ray is, that, you know, saying something mean about Shoeless Joe is a way to break your dad's heart. And, and as he said, he never got a chance to take it back. And I think we all have those little regrets in our lives. So being a part of something as big a field of dreams, how have you managed that with your children? Uh, gosh, you know, I, I think as parents, <laughs> I think parenting is just one of the most interesting things. Uh, I think you frequently try to not do the things that you didn't like about your childhood. In my case, you know, my dad, I don't know if he ever said the words, I love you to me. I mean, I know he did by his actions, but uh, with my kids, I tell them I love them every time I talk to them, you know, and, and that's just a little thing. I think there's a lot of ways, things that my dad did for me that I'm only starting to recognize now. My kids are all you know, grown up and adults now. And I wish that I had maybe been more demanding of them in the way that my dad was of me. But that was one of the things I didn't want. You know, my dad made us work pretty hard and I, I resented that growing up. Uh, but I also think it, it made me who I am. I, I'm, I'm a pretty hardworking guy and I, I focus on things and I, you know, I don't quit until they're done. And, and uh, you know, I wish, uh, you know, maybe I'd push that a little more, but I think it's just one of those things that's constantly changing. You know, you, you, you try to avoid the things that you didn't like about your childhood and give them things you did want. And then, you know, the next generation, you know, misses these things and they try to re over, you know, they try to correct. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just part of the, uh, you know, legacy of, of, uh, you know, heredity and, and, and fathers and sons. Yeah. But I do think you're right there. And it's an it's a point thing, important thing to point to, which is this idea of the parents, passing on um expectation and we we talk about that a lot around our house i have four kids my oldest is a boy he's 14 but be 15 and so there's a lot of conversation around what expectation looks like and it has nothing to do with career success as far as money being made or it has more to do with familial success you know having a family a wife a kids and, and being good being a good father and dad like that's far 
that's that's what we're hoping to push towards. Not so much um, whether or not you know you make a million dollars or you know, forty thousand a year or whatever. And so we we do have those conversations because it, it is tough to try to figure out the pressure um, that's on the child, and because you don't know exactly how they see it, and, and so we try to work through that with them. So it's I think you're dead on that there that that becomes an issue probably that a lot of parents um, and I'm not saying that we've got it nailed for sure certainly, but it's an issue that a lot of parents maybe aren't thinking through at times and, and, and can cause tension that doesn't need, need to be there. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, and maybe the movies contributed to this. I think fathers today are much more, you know, vulnerable and, and able to tap into their emotions than, than my father's generation was. I mean, they dealt with the depression and world war II, and there were a lot of reasons that you had to kind of tough it up and, 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 you know, just, you know, keep a stiff upper lip and, and, and not complain. And, uh, and I think, you know, fortunately, those things are changing a little uh, today. Okay, so you, obviously the movie, the book, but you have a new project that we were talking about briefly before. Unpack what you have going on now. Well, uh, I, uh, let's see, I, I go to Dyersville uh, where the movie was shot, you know, twice a year for different events or, or whatever. And I, I saw this beautiful old building from the 1860s that had fallen into disrepair and was, you know, going to be demolished. And uh, I, I, together with my partner, uh, David Fagan, we, we bought this building and now we've created the baseball building there. Um, because the, the emphasis from the MLB games, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot more tourists coming again to the, to see the field. And uh, <clears throat> we, uh, the, the, if you build it exhibit, which is a uh, museum about the making of the movie, uh, signed a 10 year lease with us in our building. And, uh, and my partner David and I created the Baseball Hall of Dreams in, in the building. And uh, it sort of celebrates the, the, the joy and the love and the, uh, the soul and heart of the game. Um, and we, you know, we feature players who maybe don't have the stats to be in the Hall of Fame, but who contributed greatly. The people who had to suffer and struggle to get into the big leagues, the you know, Negro leagues and, and, and Asian players and Jews and disabled players and you know, blind people and women and uh, you know, it, it's 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 kind of great. It's it's sort of uh, designed to be an inspiration. We have a in the museum. We have a wall of dreams where we encourage you to write down your dreams, whatever they are, and roll them up and stick them into the little crevices in the wall. Uh, <clears throat> you know, to kind of we'll, we'll hold on to your dreams for you until you can make them come true. And um, it's a free museum. Uh, we we we're in negotiations for another uh, another uh, uh, baseball oriented museum in the building, and uh, you know we're maybe the only place in the country that has, uh, has two baseball museums in the same building. Now we'll have three. Um, we're, we're going to open baseball batting cages uh, so that the kids could have something to do if, if their parents want to spend some time. And, and uh, you know, we're making those available for, for league play, for tournaments, for uh, everybody. And, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's just kind of exciting. We, we're we're uh, looking, we have a, we're going to have a restaurant, a baseball themed restaurant in the basement. And, uh, Anyway, it's it's just going to be another place when people come all the way to the middle of nowhere to uh, see the Field of Dreams movie site. Um, they'll have, you know, just three miles away, they'll have a um, another baseball mecca where they can celebrate, you know, the, the beautiful way that the, the game has uh, influenced America and, and vice versa. And uh you know, baseball sort of became the American sport around the Civil War when when soldiers were were playing it all over the country and uh and this building was built in around 1860, so it's it's appropriate that it that it be the baseball building because uh, you know baseball started about the same time this building was being built. Yeah, I'm looking at the website, which is thebaseballhalloffdreams.com. 
we'll link to that in the show notes for the, for the listeners. But the building, I was going to say the building is like a, a perfect building for yeah. what you're trying to encapsulate. <clears throat> it's, it's really well done. What does the local town think about this? Are they are they uh, glad to kind of have this constant attention about this movie? Yeah, they, they've, I mean, for the most part, they've been very excited. You know, there's a million beautiful little downtown Iowa towns, but this one is where they shot that movie and, and they're very proud of that legacy. And, uh, you know, they've been very supportive and, and grateful to me for, for taking this building that, you know, had been in the community, you know, obviously for, you know, almost 200 years and, and, and kind of renovating it. They've been, you know, very supportive coming by and, and, and helping me out. And, you know, frequently I'm up there painting, doing a lot of the work myself. And, and, uh, so it's great for, you know, people walking by and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and saying nice things. And, and uh, you know, they've been supportive. We've had some events, a uh, wiffle ball tournament. We had a have a catch uh, event for, for the townspeople. Uh, we, we have a collection uh, of vintage baseball mitts from the 30s and 40s. And uh, we make the kids come and play with these split finger gloves that are, uh, you know, like, like this one, well, you can't see it. My, my, my dad's glove that, uh, that I take with me everywhere I go. And the kids, you know, they're like, how do you catch with these things? You know? And so we, we have a little contest to see who can do the most catches back and forth. And we have a whole, uh, a little box of mitts in front of the place that you can just take and have a catch right in the front of the building and, you know, put them back when you're done. And I, I don't know, we're, we're just trying to, uh, you know, just get people, uh, to understand more of the intricacies and, and the beauty of the game. And, and, uh, and, you know, we're, we're, it's just been fantastic. We've had busloads of people coming out now and, and it's, uh, it's become, you know, quite the little, um, center of town, which has been great because this little area where this building was, uh, you know, had been kind of deteriorating all these years, you know, people just kind of avoided that corner and now it's sort of become a, a center. It's right across from the baseball field. So it's kind of ideally placed. It's, uh, it's really great. What's your favorite, favorite exhibit at the museum? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, to, to me, uh, th there's several of them, but the one about disabled players is kind of amazing. You know, there was a, a pitcher around the turn of the century named Three Finger Brown, Mordecai Three Finger Brown, and he actually was a very successful pitcher, uh, you know, with with just three fingers. He, he'd grown up on a farm and, and lost his hand in a in a uh, corn shucking machine and, and uh, you know, and Jim Abbott who, who, who played for years when I was a kid who, who, who just has one arm and, and, you know, I've done work with uh, the wounded warriors, the, the, the people who've come back from Afghanistan missing limbs and played softball. The fact that these guys, there's blind people who play baseball and, and, and um, you know, just the, the, a lot of the legacy. I mean, I, I don't know if you knew that, you know, Willie Mays who's still alive he, he started playing in the Negro Leagues before the color barrier was broken. I mean, that's hard to imagine that it's that recent in our history. And, and, and those things are, uh, to me, I, I just find that kind of compelling that, that you could love that game so much. You know, people who grew up dirt poor in South America and have you know, made it to the Hall of Fame is just remarkable to me. Okay, so we'll, we will link to, obviously, your website and the Hall of Dreams website. Anything else that you wanted to point people to or where to follow you or find out what you have going on? Uh, gosh, uh, well, if anybody's, uh, out there in, uh, in the Boston area, we'll be at the uh, Granite State Baseball Dinner, uh, this weekend, but, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, I hope I'll see you all out there and, uh, and maybe we can even have a catch. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for your time today. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed the film and, uh, hopefully we'll get up to Iowa and, uh, see the museum soon. Yeah, please do. Thank you. Okay. 
That is my conversation. Again, drop a five-star review wherever you may be and hop over to the newsletter to answer the question of the day, which will be in the newsletter where ryanreysenior.com slash newsletter, and we'll talk real soon.